Good morning. Welcome. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Welcome uh, to our gathering. Welcome back. Uh, welcome to those who are at home. It's good to uh, just to be together on this snowy day after a 60 degree <laughs> warm afternoon in February. Um, we are preaching through the book of Genesis, if you remember, the very first book of the Bible. Nice and easy to find if you're going to follow along uh, in the Bibles that we have under the seats. But it's Israel's uh, origin story, which turns out to be our origin story as well. Therefore, we call it Origins. And we're asking um, many of the big questions about who we are, who God is, why this all matters. Uh, looking at this story again from the perspective of uh, ancient Israel and uh, their cultural context uh, among, in and among other uh, peoples and, and uh, a lot of the themes that are coming out from many of these stories that, um, that we've interpreted through 21st century lenses actually take on a lot of different shape and meaning when you put them back in their context. Uh, and it's not that they don't have anything to say to us. They have incredible uh, worth and value. God is uh, still using his word, amen, in many ways. But um, we've misheard or misread maybe parts of the story because of our location, and we're trying to, um, to reorient again. We're, we're doing this again on Wednesday nights. We're dialoguing through many uh, aspects of this story or things that we didn't get to on Sunday. This past week, if you remember on Sunday, I talked about God's uh, ability to use men and women together in his uh, creation, that they're created equal, uh, equal worth, value, uh, status, and power over creation. Um, and uh, one of the questions that came up had to do with the New Testament passage that at first glance seems to contradict what I said on Sunday. And so we spent a lot of time digging into that passage and talking about what we might be uh, missing from that context. That it, and it had to do with Paul and Timothy and the, the situation that Timothy was dealing with in a church or in the city of Ephesus. So if that sounds interesting to you, come and, and um, ask questions, dialogue with us. Today, uh, we get to kind of the big turn in the story, at least the turn that we uh, tend to think as the major shift in Genesis, uh, which gets referred to as the fall of humanity. Uh, so we're going to read that uh, account, and we're going to proclaim some good news out of what seems to be bad, okay? Genesis 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We proclaim this good news today, family, that despite all the ways that we break communion and reject love, ways that we become defensive and hide, our Creator refuses to abandon us. Our sin does not provoke God's anger. Rather, our sin and the shame and suffering that comes in its wake evokes God's compassion. God comes towards us in love to rescue us, to heal us, to restore us to communion with Himself and with each other, creating humanity anew in Christ. God has always, always been responding to our sin just like this. And He will continue to do so until He has reconciled all things to Himself in Christ. Let me ask you this. Uh, when someone points out something that you've done wrong, maybe think of the last time this happened to you, what is your typical response? Your knee-jerk reaction? Denial. Denial, okay. <laughs> that seemed to be top of mind. I was like, do you have a recent example you'd like to... T- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Defensiveness and excuses, yeah. Yeah, questioning. Are you sure? Defensiveness, denial, accusation, rationalization. Scared? Thank you for sharing that, yeah. Fear, many times. Fear of... Oh, they know your secret, yeah. So kind of being, being found out. Maybe a fear of consequences. Um a fear of rejection or a fear of pain. That's great. Um, many of us can respond to when we're, something's pointed out that we've done wrong by hiding, right? We uh, turtle shell it, like, like the head goes into the, into the shirt, you know? Um, we duck and cover. Uh, we don't want to look at it. I was noticing this about myself, that... Just using um, my relationship with Mandy as an example, whenever I've done something that I know has hurt her and she brings it up, my, my knee-jerk reaction is never like, wow, I didn't see that before. I'm so sorry. Thank you for pointing that out because now I have the opportunity to change. How can I do better? Like That never happens in the first 30 seconds. My knee-jerk reaction, for me personally, is usually defensiveness and justification. It's, uh, I didn't mean to do it. It's, I've got a lot of things going on right now. I'm sorry if what I did, I'm sorry if you interpreted as what, like what I did or what I said as hurtful. Did you ever do that? Like, ca- like casting the, the problem onto the other person. Some of us have been recipients of that. I, I, my, my first reaction could be like, I wish you had, had pointed it out in a kinder way. You know, like I... I, I don't mind that you shared that I did something wrong to you, but 
I'd be quicker to say sorry if you hadn't used that tone, you know? I, I notice this in my body, that my first response is typically to justify and explain myself. It's hard for me to be confronted with the truth that my actions hurt someone else. Can you relate to this? I think all of us can. Maybe we use shame to control our kids, but then we justify it by saying they needed to learn a lesson, you know? Or uh, somebody finds out that we gossiped about them, and um, immediately in our minds we were like, well, I said good things too. Don't be so sensitive. Uh, We lash out at anger, and we think to ourselves, I wouldn't have done that if they weren't so annoying or if they hadn't done this to me. It's rare, I find, that we respond by saying, thank God you told me, because now I have the opportunity to apologize and learn. That's one side of the coin. Or maybe you're kind of on the other side of the coin, that when you're confronted with wrongdoing, you hide, and you go into self-condemnation mode. You avoid the person that you've offended. You decide that if you, if you can muster up a sense of self-condemnation and feeling really bad about it, like more bad than what you actually did, then those feelings will atone for your wrongdoing as payment for what you did. You try to make up for what you did bad by feeling worse or by trying harder, doing more, or fixing it. All of us have these reactions when we fall into wrongdoing. And if you've noticed this in your life, it's because we all do it. This is the condition of the human race. This is every single one of us. The inability to kind of look at what we've done wrong, to own it, and not just to own it, but to find healing, release, redemption, grace, restoration out of it. Friends, Genesis 3 is not primarily a text that says, in a long time ago, in a a garden far, far away, This one thing happened that screwed us up royally for all time. That's not the point of Genesis 3. The point of Genesis 3 is to display and declare a a dynamic that is always happening. It's, it's It's an emblematic story of our experience. It explains who we are and how we are with each other, and why this keeps happening over and over again. And on the one hand, in Genesis 3, we find ourselves inextricably involved in the sin and the wrongdoing of the world. We are complicit in it. Genesis 3 says that the brokenness that we see in the news and in the world is the same brokenness that lives in our hearts. So if if defensiveness is our go-to, then oftentimes we'll find ourselves employing strategies to accuse someone else or shift the attention to someone else or blame someone else or justify what happened, minimize what happened instead of owning it and believing that actually the best thing that could happen to you today, the most gracious, restorative thing that could occur in your life is that you might find out that you're wrong about something and have the opportunity for restoration and redemption. According to God, that's the best thing that could happen to you today. It's called repentance. Full of grace and truth. But on the other hand, if we find ourselves hiding and shaming ourselves as a knee-jerk reaction when we've done something wrong, 
If we find ourselves sort of earning our way back into redemptive love by heaping guilt and shame on ourselves, then Genesis 3 illuminates something that we might need to see in terms of the the heart and the posture of God towards us that could actually release us from that self-condemnation. Genesis 3 illuminates the bad in us, but it does not condemn us for that bad. It says something is broken, but it says that who we are ontologically in our being is someone good and worth restoration. We are not entirely good and perfect, no, but we are not entirely bad and worthless. This is the story of Genesis 3. That the good news is despite all the ways that we break communion and reject love, our Creator refuses to abandon us. Our sin friends, our sin does not provoke God's anger and removal. Our sin and the shame that it creates provokes God's compassion and God moves towards us in love to rescue us, heal us, restore us to communion with himself and each other, creating humanity anew in Christ. This is how God has always, always responded to us in our sin. And it is how he will continue to do so until all things are reconciled to himself in Christ. Two things I want to highlight from the text. One is the nature of our sin, and two is uh, the nature and the heart of God. The first is that the nature of our sin is not that we are bad and that we want to be bad to other people. Genesis 3 is not a story of our wicked wretchedness and how God wants to throw us away. But two... um, it, it tells the story of how God responds from the beginning in ways that we maybe have missed before. Ways that we don't typically think of him responding to our sin. But in fact, it, could be, it may, may in fact actually be true. So the nature of temptation and sin. Uh, Genesis 2, if you remember, verses 16 and 17, we, we looked at this last week. It says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat, from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, we, we could talk about this more on Wednesday, but do you ever wonder to yourself, like, why in the world would God put, like, the most tempting tree in the very middle of the garden? Like, if, if it's the one that you're not supposed to eat from, why do you put it center stage? And apparently it was pleasing and, and looked like the fruit looked good because it was pretty tempting to Eve when she started to take a gander at it. Is God asking for his creation to disobey him? Why would he do this? I think the reason is that the tree, tree is a symbol. It's a symbol of the price of love. Here's what I mean by that. That the price of God's love is our freedom to either choose or to not choose that love. I mean, you've heard it before. Like, it's not real love if you don't have the choice to walk away from it. It's coercion. It's control. If it's not a free choice. And what we see in Genesis is that God's love is not controlling. It's not coercive. Which means it has to be possible for us to hear the invitation of God To hear him say to us, here is my power, here is my provision, here is my protection and my presence. Do you want to live with me? And for us to be able to say, no thank you. The tree is a symbol of God 
making that choice possible. And he doesn't coerce us into loving him. He, he invites us. He says to us, I want to be in relationship with you. Is that what you want too? The tree represents this choice that we can actually say no to God. That we've been created in such a way that we can defy him, we can rebel against him, and that because we're made in God's image and imbued with God's authority, that our choices actually matter. Our choices actually have consequences. We are consequential beings. And so um, the serpent comes in. He sees this opportunity. He comes to the woman. We can talk more about his identity on Wednesday if you like. And I might get to it in more detail next week. But he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He twists God's intentions and God's words. And the woman says to the serpent, we may eat from the tree's of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Notice where she puts the, the tree. Um, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent says. In a sense, God is lying to you. And the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Essentially, the serpent's message is this. God doesn't want any rivals. He wants to hold on to the power for himself, and he doesn't want to share it with you. How does that make you feel? It's a message of disempowerment. And this seed of doubt uh, gets sown into the woman's mind. And, and this is the, the essence of the lie, is that you cannot trust God. He's not telling you everything that you need to know. He's not giving you the whole picture. He doesn't have your good in mind. You're going to have to reach out and grab what you need to survive on your own because he won't give it to you. And what you're created to have, woman and man, this fullness of life, God isn't going to give it to you. So go and get it. Take it. And this lie takes root in her, in her mind. And she starts looking at the fruit, and she notices that it's pleasing to the eye and it's desirable for gaining wisdom. Friends, this is the point. Uh, the nature of sin is not just the breaking of some arbitrary rule. The nature of sin is not that we have broken some arbitrary rule that God set up to trap us. It's not as if God said, I need to test these humans to make them jump through some hoops so I'll create this weird rule and if they break it, it'll prove just how bad they really are. That's not it. God doesn't get mad because he's not a control freak who wants perfection from his creation. But this is oftentimes the story that we've heard. But the nature of sin is not breaking an arbitrary rule. The nature of sin is grasping for the fullness of life that God has always intended to share apart from God because we don't trust that He's going to give it to us. Let me say that again. The nature of sin is a grasping for the fullness of life that God has always planned for us to have, to give to us, to share with us because we distrust that he's going to give it. 
Everything that the woman is looking for, everything that she saw in the fruit are things that she was created to have. God's presence, God's power, God's provision. I'm sure there are a few other P words I could use. They're all available to her. You have everything that you need. Eat from all the trees. That's God's provision. Let's walk and talk at the end of every day. That's God's presence. Come and create with me as you subdue the earth and name all the animals. That's God's power. She has all the things that are going to make her like God. And God has given them everything that they need. But suddenly there is a deception that happens whereby God's creation can no longer trust that God is going to give those things anymore. And so they need to grasp for them on their own. Do you see it? So the the three statements that kind of show how this trust breaks down and how that points to our very real need. The, The first one is that the tree is good for food. It's good for food. It's going to give a sense of security. It points to our need for security, that we're going to have enough to, to be able to live off of, to survive. And friends, like we are made to feel like we have enough. We're made to receive from God's provision, to, to know that we're safe and protected and secure. And God desires to give us this security. But when we doubt His character, when we find our ourselves uh, mistrusting of God's ability to give it, then we go grasping for it in other ways. Our insecurity leads us to all kinds of things that end up hurting ourselves and hurting other people. The same with the second one. The second one is the fruit was pleasing to the eye. This uh, represents our need for belonging. The idea is to... um, That if we have this fruit, it's pleasing to the eye. Not just our eye, but other people's eyes too. That if we have it, then we'll possess something of value so others will accept us and want us to be around them. Because we doubt that God's presence is going to give us what we need. So we run around trying to be like other people. Wanting people to see the good things that we do and the ways that we add value. It's all out of a need for belonging. And we also have a need for significance. This is the the idea of power. Um, The false promise that the serpent gives to the woman is that she'll be like God. Uh, She'll have a sense of autonomy, of, of influence, of agency. But the truth is that we've been made to share in God's power. We are like Him. But if we don't trust Him for that power out of His goodness and His mercy, we end up grasping for that power. And we try to prove our significance with our achievements or with our domination of other human beings. But we come by these these, uh, attempts, these graspings, honestly. None of us sets out to be evil people. We set out to get our needs met, and in in finding our needs met, we end up hurting ourselves and others. You see how that works? Sin does not come out of a horrible moral character where we just want to, like, be terrible to to everything around us. Most of us aren't trying to hurt others. It's just that we find it unfortunately necessary. A necessary evil, we might call it. That if we're going to get what we think we need, we cannot trust God to give it to us. 
And that's the nature of all sin. It's a grasping for belonging, significance, and security apart from the power, protection, and provision of God. And that's how it shows up in all our lives. So it's, it's less important to think about sin as some rule that we've broken that, you're, that we're sort of being punished for because we've broken it. And it's more important to actually get under the surface of our desires and, and figure out what is it that I'm, I'm trying to get fulfilled in terms of my needs. What is it that I don't have that I think I need and how am I trying to get after it? What's happening in me that makes me want, want it enough that I'm willing to hurt others to get it? That's first. Genesis is showing us that, that Sin is grasping for very real needs without God's presence, protection, and power. Second, Genesis shows us God's response to our sin. That it is uh, wholly unlike how we may have imagined it. So the woman and the man, they eat the fruit, um, they seek after their needs apart from God, and the effects are immediately devastating. They start to die right then and there. Their eyes are open, they notice that they're naked, and shame floods them like a river. They've always been able to be with each other, to be transparent, and all of a sudden they feel this need to cover and hide. And God comes towards them in their condition, and rather than running to him and saying, something terrible has happened, please help us, they hide from him. Remember, the reason why they do this is because they have believed the lie that they cannot trust God. That lie took root in them. And they acted on that lie, turning it into reality. Their false perception of what God is like has become for them the reality of who He is. Remember when I said this back in the fall, I believe, that the God as you imagine Him is the God that you live with? This is what's happening to Adam and Eve. God has not changed one iota in terms of his relationship to them, but their perception of who he is has changed, and therefore they run. They are living with a different God who does not exist. You've got to notice here that they're not hiding because God is mad, and hiding is the appropriate thing to do. <laughs> It's because their imaginations of what God is like have been hijacked by sin. They're covering from each other. They're hiding from God. They're experiencing shame because of their mistrust and realizing that this terrible thing has happened. And yet in the midst of this, what is God's first move? What's his first move? This isn't incidental. This is important. What's his first move? He engages them. His first move is to move towards those who've sinned, not away. To seek after them. God is not, in Genesis 3, shielding his eyes from their sin because he's disgusted by them. God does not respond to their sin with an outburst of anger and rage and say, how dare you offend my holiness. God is not exasperated and frustrated with them. He doesn't roll their eyes at his, his eyes at them and say, I can't believe what you just did. Did you ever project any of those three reactions to your sin onto God? To think that he is somehow 
either disgusted or wrathful or exasperated with you when you do something wrong? Friends, isn't it good news to know that that's a projection of reality onto God and not actually who God is? It's not actually who he is. The picture that we see is not a God who's offended by our sin, but a God who moves because of his compassion to us in our sin. In fact, he will come as close to us in our sin as we will allow him to do. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't come to them and say, I'm disappointed with you. He says, where are you? Because I want to get close to you. I want to look after you. I want to take care of you. I want to help you. I want to serve you. And we read this story as one of disobedience and punishment. How Adam and Eve disobeyed this one rule and therefore God punished them with death. That's not what this text says. In fact, I think um, a lot of us have this idea about God that he, that, he, um, that he cannot look upon our sin and therefore he separates himself from us when we are in sin. We get this idea from Habakkuk 1. There is one verse in one minor prophet that says God is too pure to look on evil. And we take that one verse to mean that God will never, ever, ever come close to us anytime we sin. It creates this system where we have to somehow work our way back into God's good graces by either feeling bad or doing good. Which is utterly antithetical to the cross and to the nature of God. The rest of Scripture, what we see here in Genesis all throughout the rest of the story, culminating in the life of Jesus, tells us a different story. We are not separated from God because we're guilty of breaking a rule or a law and therefore God cannot look at us until payment is made on our behalf. If that were the case, God wouldn't have moved closer and closer to Adam and Eve. It's it's not God who moves away. It's Adam and Eve who move away because of their distrust. In other words, the the fall doesn't create a problem inside God and his disposition towards us. The fall creates and perpetuates a problem inside us and our disposition towards God. God is always moving towards us in our sin. But in our sin, we distrust him and we move away from him through hiding and blame. It's not God who, who refuses to look at our sin. It's us who either refuse to look at it or refuse to receive healing of it. Friends, God moves towards us just as he moved towards Adam and Eve in compassion and love, beginning the process of restoration, rescue, and healing from the jump. It's not that we've broken a rule and provoked God's anger. We are not sinners in the hands of an angry God. My apologies to Jonathan Edwards. It's that we've mistrusted God and grasped for something good outside of his presence, provision, and power. And that sin provokes God's tender compassion who works from day one to bring us back home. Yes, we do inherit the consequences of our sin, which include death. More on this next week. But God is not mad at us. If anything, he's mad with us. He's mad at what our distrust has done to us and our relationship with him and each other. Do you get the difference there? When, when my kids do something bad, 
Yes, I, oftentimes I'm mad, but in my best moments I'm mad because I, I believe that they were made for something better. And I want to work with them towards restoration. I'm not mad at them, I'm mad with them at what their sin is doing to them and to others. Do you see that? The reason I have that in my heart as a dad is because it comes because I'm made in the image of a father who feels that way and, and, and is that way towards us. And this, this is the ultimate response that we see in Jesus. We see it in prototype form here. Sometimes it's called the proto-euangelion. It's like the pre-working of the gospel of grace that's going to work itself out through Jesus and the cross. When um, later in, in chapter 3, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity or war between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And it's this idea that there's going to be a spiritual battle from now on, but the offspring of the woman will, by dying himself, gain victory over the forces that have deceived us in the first place to mistrust God. God is going to rehabilitate our picture of him by becoming one of us. That's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He puts this rescue plan into place from day one. God says, I'm, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to rescue you from the consequences of your sin. I'm going to restore you from your mistrust of me. Friends, this is God's response to you in your sin, in your shame. And this is what Jesus was doing in the temptations that he experienced in the wilderness. I wish I could say more about it, but I can't right now. But the idea is that Jesus comes into the world, and where Adam failed, Jesus prevails. And he triumphs over the powers that have used and abused us and tricked us into mistrusting God. That's why 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We get a new start, a new story, a new beginning, a new picture of what God is like, what God has always been like. That despite all the ways that we break communion and reject love, our Creator refuses to abandon us. Our sin does not provoke His anger. Our sin and the shame and suffering that follow provoke God's love and mercy. He moves towards us in compassion to rescue, restore us, heal us. And God has always been doing it this way. And He will continue to do so until He has reconciled all things to Himself in Christ. So, as we respond... I asked you earlier to consider how you typically tend to um, uh, respond when someone points out that you've done something wrong. Maybe something sort of visceral and real comes to mind for you whenever that question comes around. There's something that you, um, uh, that creates a defensiveness or, or a desire to hide. I'm asking you to bring that to mind, not as an act of self-condemnation, but maybe as we pray, you could picture the God that we've declared this morning moving toward you in love while you're in that condition. And to hear what he has to say to you, to receive uh, how he wants to be with you, and to see what comes of that interaction. Does that sound... Okay? All right.
Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of our shame and suffering, the things that we've done wrong, God, we thank you that you move towards us in love to rescue and redeem. God, rather than turning our face away, away from you and away from the things that we've done, Lord, now, right now, as an act of faith, we turn toward you. We receive your presence, your power, your provision. We declare that it's ours for the taking. We declare our mistrust and our misprojections of what you're like. Renew us, God, in our minds. Give us a new picture that would release us, God, from our defensiveness and our shame. Lord, we receive these things by faith. In Jesus' name.